Hello and welcome to The Irish at War. I'm your host, David Cummins. Today I'm talking with Stephen Callaghan, a historian who works in and around the Burr Barracks, which was home to the Lancer Regiment of the British Army. Stephen also works in the town of Burr itself, working in the graveyards and other various monuments about the place, all which we'll talk about in today's episode. But first, I just want to say a quick thank you so much to everybody who's still supporting and following me on Instagram and Twitter. I'm nearly at 19,000 followers on Twitter, which is just incredible. And I have finally hit 1,000 followers on Instagram. If you're new to this podcast, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Ireland Battles, where I post daily about Irish military history. So please like and give us a follow as well. You can also find me at Patreon, where for as little as three euro a month, you can become a patron of this podcast. You'll get much longer, much more detail in posts. Everything that I post on the Twitter feed, it's just basically in a much longer version. A lot more information, there's links to sources, and there's a lot more there as well. So if you can, that's only three euro a month, you know, if you met me in a cafe, would you buy me a cup of tea and have a chat about history with me? That's all I'm asking for. But not everybody can at the minute. So if you can't, no worries. But anyway, enough of all that. Let's get talking to Stephen Callan. Okay, so Stephen, tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do. Um, I suppose, for want of a better word, I could be classed as a historian. Um, I spend a lot of my free time uh, researching and writing things related to burial grounds in Offaly, uh, with a particular focus on Burr. Um, I suppose my interest in Burr is probably the main thing people would note if they were to read anything I've written. And that interest probably comes from having spent a lot of time in the town when I was younger. Uh, my mom was born there, and... Um, we spent many times during the summer in that visiting relatives. Um, and I suppose maybe just over a decade ago, when my granny was in a nursing home there and we'd go and visit, um, I might spend an hour with her and then wander off on my own. And it was wandering around local burial grounds, um, especially Kalina Hall Cemetery, that I particularly noticed that the town had um, a lot of uh, military connections. You'd look at graves and you'd see people fought in ex-regiment and um, it sort of made me think I, I knew there had been a barracks in the town but I hadn't really taken any heed of it too much and then it was focusing a bit more on that that I think in the early my early internet days I discovered something about a, a memorial in a, in a cemetery in Crinkle and I was like oh that's interesting um, we used to occasionally eat an attached uh, restaurant up there so I think one time afterwards I just found a cemetery, didn't pay much heed to the cemetery and was gobsmacked by this memorial to the 3rd Battalion Leinster Regiment, their um, dead casualties from the Second Anglo Boer War. And I suppose with all this sort of information and history, I was just sort of gobsmacked. Um, I suppose growing up, you always hear, or I'd always hear Burr is you know, a great Georgian town and mm. there's a telescope and a castle there and, and that was about it. Um, there wasn't really much in the way of, of anything about the military side of things and sort of my own little bits and pieces, um, I discovered that there's a great, huge connections and in, very interesting things there. 
Um, and then I suppose I was blessed in a sense that I applied for an internship, um, I think in 2013 in Offaly County Council, recording all the burial grounds in the county. Um, there was only two people who got interviews for it, and I was the person who got the position purely based on I had written something just very briefly on a military graves in, in Burr, and I suppose the internship just it sent me on a completely different direction uh, and really just focused on history and military within the county. Um, as part of the a part of the internship, I recorded every sort of known burial ground within the county, and that was about 188 burial grounds. Mm-hmm. And out of those, I personally visited something like 168 or 170. Um, so it was a sort of big breast of the county I got to see as well. Um, and I suppose after that, I've just my research and sort of energy has been focused on quite a lot of Offaly and uh, sort of military heritage, basically everything. And it, it sort of set me on the path that I'm on now. That's really interesting. Um, it's it's amazing how childhood memories can have such a profound effect on you as well. Like you were saying, you spent your times down in Burr. Myself, I spent a lot of time down in Banno in Wexford, where my dad was from, Carrick on Banno. But, you know, I was introduced to the Normans and all the castles and all that kind of stuff. And the lost, there was a book written the last five, ten years on the lost city of uh, Banno. Um, which, you know, that's something that I'm still really interested purely from my childhood days, just like you were saying there. But that's really interesting that, you you know, you spent so much, nearly like 200, 200 uh, uh, graves um, all over the, the length and breadth of Offaly as well. That's really interesting. Um, and what was this book on the military cemetery that you were talking about earlier on? Um, I suppose the book that I've written on um, Burr Military Cemetery, that that sort of leads back to my first encounter of the military cemetery and, and just for whatever reason, getting, uh, uh, to suppose it's the words obsession about it. Um, I remember when I first saw it, it was overgrown and the little bits of information on it. Uh, and there was only something like 55 headstones remaining, which maybe account for 63 people. And like, there's not the 63 people there. There's easily 300 people buried there. And and this I got this sort of desire to know who are the other people buried there. It's all too easy to just focus on the visual aspect that oh, there's 55 headstones. These are the only people that are buried here. When there's other stories waiting to be told. So um, I, I spent a, a lot of time trying to add on numbers to that. And I was blessed by um, a pure pure happenstance. I was photographing some Church of Ireland records when the um, the uh, Archdeacon came in and he said, look what I found. And it was the Garrison Burial Register. And I was literally wow. speechless. Um, I, I couldn't I couldn't put together a coherent sentence. Um, but that's what I'd been looking for. And, and that was my break. So using that and then another model I sort of established, which, which is based on the fact that if you were a soldier in a barracks and you were, you know, you died... You were, you were buried more or less where you, you died. The British didn't repatriate soldiers. Mm. The exception might be officers if they had, their family had private means, which in Burr, um, there were actually two officers who were murdered. 
Um, one of them, Robertson McKay, who was actually, he was buried in the town. And then another one, um, uh, James Clutterbuck. And he was, bar- he was his father, who was a priest, came all the way over to Ireland from a place called Long Whittenham and brought his body back to be buried. But, but, but outside of those cases, generally, if you're out of ranks, you're, you're buried where you die. So, and uh, then, uh, oh, sorry, sorry and uh, where are you said that they were murdered? Was that when was that that they died? Um, yeah, so we're getting on to a bit of a side tangent here, but um, some of the officers stationed in Burr have had sort of um, terrible mishaps. Um, Robertson McKay of the um, Fifth Fusiliers was murdered in the 1840s. Um, he was out drilling a company of soldiers when one of them, a private George Duby, asked to be um, dismissed from drill and he was granted permission. He went off to the quarry, which um, where, the drill, where the drill field is, there, there was a quarry pond, which um, they allowed to flood and they used it to pump water into the barracks. Um, he went there, he loaded his musket and came back within about five feet of... Um, I jumped to McKay and, and shot him dead and dropped his gun, gave himself up. Um, and then in his defense, he was he said that the men were being drilled too hard. And actually, the previous year under McKay's drilling, um, a soldier had collapsed and died. So um, wow. he yeah. seems to have just snapped. And um, the story of Juby is sort of quite sad because he ends up in Tullamore jail and is sentenced to death by hanging. And um, he's befriended by um, um, a local businessman, Robert um, Goodbody. And Goodbody um, comes in and tries to actually have uh, Juby's sentence um, brought down from death because he just so f- feels so sorry for him. And then I think the couple of days before Juby's execution, um, Robert offers to go up to the gallows with him to, for the sentence to be carried out. And then as well... Um, Juby writes two letters, um, one to his regiment and one to just as a warning saying that, you know, um, I think there's a bit of a religious overtone. He says um, to, to, to sort of to live without God is to not live at all and to basically try and, you know, live a good life and, and don't follow in his footsteps. Um, but it's a sad case. And I suppose maybe today. If something like that happened, the the sentence might not be that. But um, it's sort of interesting. And then the other other murder case is a chap called James Clutterbuck, who was a spookly again in the same regiment, the Fifth Fusiliers, and he was out duck hunting. He'd got a, a local man called Lawrence King to bring him out. Um, this is about 1865, and um, I think King. Um, for whatever reason, um, decided he was going to murder him and he shot him dead with a shotgun on the boat. They're out in the little Brosna River, um, stripped Clutterbuck of all his clothes and left him in a, a hole, which is locally known today as Clutterbuck's Hole. Um, a local person noted Lawrence King coming back with two guns and basically an officer's uniform. And was sort of, at, and he was drunk as well. And she was asking him, you know, where'd you get all this stuff? And he said that he'd murdered a man, and that he said that you know it was no big deal. They they felt like flies in the Crimea, um, and he was convicted along with his dad. And um, for his troubles, he was executed. Jesus, wow, Jeez. that's incredible. 
But that's really interesting. Um, Cluder Books Hole, God, such a name. And then um, the first guy had a private pile moment from Full Metal Jacket and killed his instructor. Yeah, I think um, I mean, uh, during during this particular summer, the weather had been like, quite hot and you're marching with your full equipment, your weapon and, you know, full marching gear. So if you're doing this maybe three times a day, and it's excessive. And McKay, other men in um, Juby's company noted that McKay's drilling was quite excessive. Like some people are going to have a breaking point and and a snap. And um, Juby's was to, to kill his um, commander or commanding officer. Wow, that's crazy. Um, it's quite ironic, actually, as well. Um, this sort of brings on another point. Um, Robertson McKay is buried in the old graveyard in Burr in a quite lavish box tomb and it says on it that he died under conscious discharge of his duty while most likely uh, McKay or Juby sorry was just thrown into a piss in the the, the jail sort of an anonymous grave where mm. the person uh, responsible for it has a you know a more lavish tomb and I suppose this shows you the means of of private individuals and officers is is um, different. Yeah, and actually, what you said there about the um, the reinterment of British soldiers, we came across that the other day when we were talking about I can't remember his first name, but Private Prosser, who won the Victoria Cross out in the Crimea. Oh yeah, yeah. He he ended up well, you know, he he won the Victoria Cross out there, and he was stationed down in Gibraltar. Then afterwards, so he missed the first award ceremonies, but he got them the second time. But like that, he ended up living in Liverpool, wasn't it? And then he uh, he passed away in like 1868, died in Liverpool, but he was repat- he was never repatriated. But it wasn't until 1995 or something that they finally you know spruced up his pauper's grave and put a proper memorial there and his medals with the uh, in Edinburgh Castle. So his you know his medal got a better memorial i suppose than he did which is a bit strange yeah just going back to the, the sort of book on the cemetery um as i mentioned there's about 55 headstones but through all the research that i have done i've identified about 296 people buried there and like you wouldn't be surprised with the number if you look at the way the cemetery is the ground's fairly undulating and you can see it's been quite heavily used and even in the newspapers in the 1870s there's a, a mention that the extension to the cemetery has been complete, which shows that um, it, it filled up pretty fast. Um, and I suppose just because you can't, you know, you don't see the headstones doesn't mean there's not people buried there. Right. Um, and a lot of these people, like, they, they might have been just privates in the army from England, Scotland, or wherever, and they just died, and there was really no one there. They didn't have a wife, maybe. They weren't well-known in the regiment to or the regiment wasn't there long enough to have a headstone erected. So this sort of little quiet place in Burr is sort of your final resting place and sort of a final testament to the barracks because um, uh, Burr Barracks was burnt uh, in July 1922. Mm-hmm. And then after its burning, there were a few attempts to maybe rebuild it, but nothing ever came of it. And it was finally sold off for basically scrap stone in the 1950s. So um, sort of these people are sort of a legacy of, of the barracks, essentially, and I suppose quite important um, in, in sort of recognising uh, sort of 
what went on in the time and, and how important the barracks was for the local economy. Yeah, it's yeah. really interesting, actually. Um, like, I've been to Crinkle Barracks once. You mentioned the Thatch restaurant. Me and my mate was also interested in history. We decided to go down there for something to eat. But like that, we said we'd stop by at the barracks as well just to check it out. And it's interesting, because, it's interesting that you mentioned that because it... I saw old photos of it, and it's pretty impressive, but you know, nowadays it's, it's a shell of its former self. We barely got past the outer wall, you know, and the gate, and there wasn't anything really else to see, you know. When you mentioned Crinkle Barracks itself, it's got an interesting history as well, if you want to tell us about that. Yeah, the barracks is quite interesting, and I suppose what I've been trying to do is better understand its history. I suppose there's, there's sort of like a bit of an art about there, which is sort of, it's... It's sort of the the story you hear about it all the time, but if you dig a bit more, you you get a bit more information on it um, and a bit better understanding of how it worked. Um, The barracks are sort of like a response to the Napoleonic Wars and the the need of a barracks in the town itself. Prior to its sort of conception, a lot of local, a lot of soldiers would have been stationed in private billets in the town. So uh, this sort of idea of sort of permanent barracks i think was drawn up in the early 1800s and the one from burr they surveyed two sites in i think about 1806 or 7 and they decided the one in crinkle and um, they put out a tender in 1808 and it was given to bernard mullins and two other contractors who had come together with him uh, their names escaped me i suppose bernard mullins is sort of the, the more well-known one because he built the Catholic Church in Burr as well. But anyway, the, the barracks took, I think, three years to complete. And um, when it was completed, it could hold about a thousand men. Um, so at the time, that would have been about two two regiments. Um, and then over time, it developed. Um, there was a canteen, a hospital, a garrison church, um, a stables, and... Um, as well, um, uh, married quarters, which were put up in the 1870s, which could accommodate 27 families, but it was never enough. And sometimes married soldiers would have to sort of take up local houses in, in Crinkle. Mm-hmm. Um, as well, with the barracks in, in Crinkle, you get a huge redevelopment of the town itself. You get, which which is no surprise, Military Road, which is a fairly straight road coming from... Um, sort of the, the the bottom end of Burr um, towards the south, that replaced a more sort of rickety road. And you, you get other things as well, like um, there's Whiteford Road, which was the original road the army built to go to the rifle range. Mm-hmm. And you just get this more of streamlining of the town to make movement of troops a lot easier, which is sort of interesting. And the town, well, Crinkle just expanded from there. You have potentially a thousand men there at any one time, so it brought a lot of money into the, the local economy. But what happens towards the start of the 19th century is that sanitation needs are are the, the barracks doesn't meet sanitation requirements. The drains are out of date. Actually, in 1897, there's an outbreak of entrisis. You see soldiers using contaminated wells. One of them dies from the Hampshire Regiment. A few others are get pretty sick. And um, in around eighteen, around that time as well, you get um, basically the War Department saying that the barracks is no longer fit to ho- house uh, an infantry regiment. 
Um, so they're sort of local, sort of the local town are sort of worried that they, if, if the army isn't going to use the barracks anymore, it's going to be sort of um, quite bad for the economy. Yeah. What ends yeah. up happening is it's down, I think it is abandoned for a while, but then um, the outbreak of the Boer War helps and that there are some regiments stationed there. Um, and it's sort of, but I suppose the start of the early 20th century, it's the barracks is never really used to its full capacity. More men are allotted more space per square feet than previously, um, so it, it's never really used at full capacity of a thousand men um, at the start of the, the 20th century. And then towards the end of the history of or the, the life of the barracks, um, you get sort of the well, I suppose the I suppose people know the barracks is sort of synonymous with the Leinster Regiment, which I, I probably should explain that. Um, in the early in the eighteen seventies, you get this idea of sort of having regiments in a, or sorry, it's before that, it's the eighteen fifties or sixties. I, I can't put the the date off the top of my head. You have this idea of regiments in semi. Uh, permanent fixed location so you get this idea of having depots um, there's there are various reforms in the British Army in the 1870s yeah. Yeah. the 100 Regiment of Foot and 109 Regiment of Foot are assigned to Burr and then in 1881 you get the, the whole uh, Cardwell or Childers Reform sorry and you get the number has been replaced with formal regiments and having two regular infantry battalions and then three militia battalions for Ireland or two for England. And then you get um, the local uh, Kings County militia becoming the, the third Leinster Regiment, which is, again, quite synonymous with the town. Um, a lot of people would have served in the militia and then went out to South Africa in 1900. Um, and I suppose the end of the story of the barracks is... Um, with the Anglo-Irish Agreement, you get the, the disbandment of the Irish regiments. The barracks itself is handed over to the IRA. And then within the IRA, there's a split pro and anti-treaty side. And then um, in a bid to stop the pro-treaty side reoccupying the barracks as, a, I suppose, a strategic location, you get the burning of the barracks in July 1922. Apparently, um, the petrol that they used to start the fire um, had been taken from a local petrol station or sorry, petrol station on the green in Burr and in payment for the petrol they gave the person um, the piano from the officer's mess um, as payment which uh, that's not yes, not terribly come bad. By in those days quite famous that's crazy actually quick question on the Leinster Regiment because um, I'm fairly interested in them as well obviously from Offaly from you know um, Lancer, Lancer Regiment was the nearest one. Do you know why their mascot was like the three ostrich plumes? So their commander-in-chief was the Prince of Wales. Mm -hmm. So they get the, the title, the Prince of Wales. Uh, and, or if you want to add on, um, in brackets, Royal Canadians. Yeah, the Royal Canadians. Lancer Regiment. Um, and the Canadian connection comes from the, the amalgamation of the 100th and 109th foot together the 100 foot was originally raised in canada and um, they they give a bit of sort of retrospect history there the original 100 foot was raised in the early 1800s um, and the, the royal canadian sort of 100 100 foot was i think 18 1858 and they they sort of 
retrospectively gave the earlier one um, sort of uh, as part of its lineage. But the, right. the Royal Canadian connection comes from that the, the regiment was sort of raised in Canada. And then the 109th foot was originally raised in India. Yeah. Yeah. The third Bombay okay. infantry, I think, or, or European infantry. That's cool. Okay. So now we know that for sure. Okay. So you, you had been mentioning that you'd spent your, you know, you got the uh, internship with Offaly County Council and you'd spent, um, you know, quite a bit of time photographing and just recording all of the cemeteries in Offaly. Um, tell us about, you were mentioning about St. Brendan's Old Cemetery in Burr. Yeah, so that sort of neat leads on nicely. Um, I think it was during um, the Heritage Officer in Offaly County Council, Amanda Pedlow is fantastic. Every year she organises sort of heritage seminars on sort of what's going on in the county and I was presenting my um, what I had done for recording the burial grounds and it was only maybe for 15-20 minutes and I had randomly got chatting to someone after that saying that I would love to record um, St. Brendan's old graveyard um, because it's a, it's a fantastic site. I used to I don't know if I should be saying this or not, but it's probably fine. I have the key now. But I used to hop over into the cemetery. One of the railings, um, the cemetery's locked, but one of the railings was missing. So you can sort of hop up and then hop in. Right. And I scurry around. And because I was under sort of, sort of the illusion that, you know, I was going to get in trouble or something if I was caught, I'd just be running around and the place seemed immense. It seemed too fast. And you'd be trying to get a glimpse at all the memorials and then sort of sneak out again. But um, here I was chatting to someone saying, oh, yeah, I'd like to do that. And um, they asked how much how much would it cost to do it. So I got funding for this. And this was sort of in part for the bicentenary celebrations of the new Church of Ireland Church in Ireland. And you're probably thinking that sounds a bit contradictory. New by bicentenary of the new church. So what happened was um, there was the old medieval multi-period church and um, with the influx of soldiers from the barracks and basically the wall and repairs adding up, they needed new space. They were like, right, we're going to build a new church. So they built a new church, which was completed in 1860, 16, sorry. And uh, as part of the celebrations for that, I was commissioned to record the history of the old church and the graveyard. And um, so I was had... We were we had collaboration with Offaly County Council, so I was given a key. I, I no longer had to sneak into the graveyard. Right. I could spend as as long as I wanted in there. Um, so I set about recording it, um, and and the place is absolutely amazing. It's such an important place for the local people of Burr. Um, it's it's the earliest burial ground in the town, and as I said, there's a medieval church there, but it's probably likely the the original location of St. Brendan's Monastery. And when you think of that and that the site's been potentially in continuous use for over a thousand years, you have to wonder, like, you know, are, are all the original ancestors of the people who settled in were buried here? And if you do think of it like that, there are just probably thousands and thousands of people buried there that go back hundreds and eight, you know, maybe 800 years. And it's, it's so steeped in history um, I suppose the, the headstones that I was recording are basically just the, the, the squatters, essentially, because they've only been buried there 
for maybe two or three hundred years when you have people buried there for eight hundred years. And even just looking at the history of this site, it's fantastic. It's it's very it's very interesting. Um, as I mentioned, um, there's uh, Robertson McKay is buried there, the officer who was murdered in Burr Barks. Um, there's actually a veteran of Waterloo buried there, a very distinguished uh, officer, George Washington Holmes. Uh, he was born in 1877, probably from Dublin, and enlisted in the 92nd Foot, was promoted up to captain, um, and was fighting Napoleon in the early 1800s in Egypt, or in the Egyptian campaign. He fought his way through the Peninsula War, seriously wounded no less than three times, and then he was present at um, Waterloo, and then settled in Burr, and lived to the ripe old age of 82. Um, When he died, um, the local paper said that he was as benevolent as a lamb during peacetime, but as fierce as a lion during battle. And like that, that pretty much sums it up. He sounds like quite a badass. Um, And I suppose going about recording the cemetery, um, I'm not an archaeologist by any stretch of the imagination. So on that aspect, I got a little bit out of my depth, so ended up um, collaborating with archaeologist uh, Cayman O'Brien, who um, we sort of pulled together to to finish writing the history of the, the site from the early times up to the modern times. Um, it's interesting, with the cemetery itself, the people of the town are sort of in desperate need for somewhere else. As I said, it's been in use for potentially 800 years. So they open a new cemetery, um, which is now known as Bully's Acre. But I think that's a bit of a, a, a misnomer. So you, you get a new burial ground been opened in eight, around 1815 and people in uh, Burr start being buried there. The old St. Brendan's one becomes neglected. Then the new one becomes neglected too, and you get oh, both right. burial grounds been neglected, and it gets to the point where St. Brendan's, um, basically it said that you could not pass it without basically the stench of death, and that a lot of people in the surrounding area were, were getting sick from basically the nastiness in the ground. It was said that one a new grave could not be opened without exposing the decompate the decomposing remains of other ones. So it uh, it sounds quite nasty, yeah. and as well, um, there's a fantastic quote in a newspaper. I think it's maybe the 1880s by a chap called Nishi Marks, who says that the burial ground there is in such a bad state that it would take the great African explorer Stanley no less than a full suit of armor than not to be stung to death by nettles. Um, which gives you an idea of this sort of how bad a stage it got into. Um, ultimately, the town was saved. Um, Lord Ross donated land just outside the town and in the townland of Clonottle, and you get Clonottle Cemetery, which uh, was opened in 1869, and that sort of replaced the two earlier um, burial grounds. But just the book itself on uh, St. Brendan's Heart and Soul, it's it was just a pleasure to do and to record sort of just so what, what's so important for local knowledge and just the, the previous generations of the town, you, you get people buried there like the Riddler family who um, the father was a clockmaker uh, and you get other people, butchers and all sorts of different local people from the town of various stature. Um, so that was quite fantastic to do. I presume it is, it's just a public cemetery. It's not purely military, but am I right in saying that the Gallagher's 
are they buried there? They have a fairly extensive um, military past. Oh yeah, um, the Gallagher family, which I did a, a blog post on my uh, blog on, um, they would be most likely buried in Clonmel Cemetery. Okay, in the new um, one. Okay. A lot of these older cemeteries, once once the the newer ones were open, they were closed to burials unless you had a, a plot there. Um, the Gallagher family are interesting. Um, it's basically an entire family with military service. The father was in the militia and um, he fought out in South Africa during the Boer War with the 3rd Battalion Leinster Regiment. Um, then two of his sons joined up for the First World War. And then one of his grandsons was um, in the British Army during the Second World War and was uh, taken prisoner of war at the fall of um, Singapore. That, that, that's, I suppose, just one story of many. When you're looking at the families of Burr, this isn't that that isn't an, an exception and um, it seems to be rather common that the fought well as far as i can tell the fathers in the militia the sons might not have the best of education sort mm-hmm. of working class families they join up and then potentially their children join up so you get at least three generations of many families serving in the british army there's another um really sort of sad case of um one family in sandy mount um, and basically the father again was in the Boer War and then both parents die early and one of the sons, uh, no education, joins the army. His brother and brother-in-law are killed in action and then sadly himself is killed in 1915 during the, the Battle of Festeberg. Right, right, right. Jeez. Yeah, I suppose it makes sense that with the... British Army as massive employer as it was, like we mentioned earlier on, like, you know, the townspeople of Burr were kind of fairly worried about if the British Army was going to move out, the loss of capital infl- uh, input there, you know, a lot of young men spend a lot of money, it would have detriment effect. And so it made sense that a lot of, you know, if a father joined, the son was probably going to join or whatever. Um, but yeah, that makes a lot of, a lot of sense. And it's funny, actually, what you mentioned there with the old St. Brennan's, the DNA, like, um, or, or trying to figure out whether, you know, any of the locals today still have ancestors or backed, or, or, or are buried, you know, uh, from back then as well. Because I saw just there yesterday on the news, they found that they had done some DNA uh, tests on the remains found in Newgrave. And they found that, like, whoever was buried there was clearly some regal or, or member of nobility and they were more than likely their parents were more than likely um related which was fairly common and but it's interesting that you know if that was possible if they were able to you know take out a section a sample of, of graves take dna remains if possible you know and, and test see if anybody still lived there in the area i wouldn't be surprised um i mentioned i when i was doing that i had access to copies of the Church of Ireland uh, parish records and some of them are burial records and just looking through some of the names like there there's some there were some names there that are still in the town maybe not as um prevalent as they would have once been but there are definitely people that have been in the town for for several hundred years which is quite quite remarkable when you think about it I always found that pretty interesting because I'm you know I grew up in Edenary but I'm not from there but I remember 
like you would just know of some of the different names and they didn't sound right. But I remember one particular family who had an unusual name. Uh, when I was researching the book on the First World War, I came across you know, their ancestor, you know, their great grandfather, great great grandfather, who was a British Army soldier who had came across um, and they settled in the town. They, you know, married one of two sisters. I think his brother was in it and they married two sisters or something like that. And they'd settled in Eden Dairy. So, yeah, it's, it's interesting that um, the names are still prevalent and people just stick around. But what you'd mentioned there uh, was, you know, that you're not an archaeologist, but probably some of your most famous work, as you said at the outset of this conversation, was your work on the Crinkle Barracks and the mock trenches for the First World War that you'd taken part in. Tell us about that. Um, yeah, that was, again, it was almost a fluke that had happened. It was like just talking to the previous person and saying, oh, I'd like to do that. Um, how it came about was... Um, I was sort of known, um, I suppose, locally for having written the book and um, uh, a local Irish heritage school had sort of set up base in the town and um, an archaeologist, Dr. Dennis Shine, was interested in looking for the original monastery, um, which would have been, or they think is within the, the church, uh, the graveyard. So he had got um, someone to come over and do geophys and he knew as well, I think, I had the key to the cemetery. So he just wanted to talk to me and to maybe get the key. And I had sort of done a bit of research on the Irish Heritage School and what they do. And an aspect of their work is community archaeology. Archaeology. So when I was chatting to Dennis on the phone, I was like... Um, Something like, oh, uh, I, you know, I know you're interested in doing community archaeology. I have an idea that might be of interest, and and this sort of stems that um, I had this idea in my head that the word trenches in in the fourteen acres, which is the 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 barracks training ground, and I wasn't sure if I had just made this up or not, or if I had heard it from someone. But um, I said it to Dennis, and he was very interested, and he got the the girl who did the geophys on St. Brendan's looking for the, the original monastery, uh, Ashley Green, from Bournemouth University, to come over, and fair play to her. She, she came over in December um, 2017 um, on Christmas Day, or actually Christmas Eve, and oh, surveyed yeah. the site that we had. What What is important, though, to remember about the, the 14 acres is that um, it's it's not complete. It, it's sort of during the fifties, maybe sixties. Um, half of it was built on with a housing estate, so we weren't really sure of would we get trenches or not. I had seen yeah. on the ground sort of undulations, which you know, if you sort of squinted and looked in the right light, they could look like of course World War Mark trenches. Mm -hmm. So Ashley did her geophys, and we got back the results, and we had a few areas of interest that looked like archaeology so um dennis was keen to progress this to an excavation to my delight i never taught in a million years that something like this could happen so um because of the cost involved with an excavation like this um we decided that it would be a community-based excavation and that um people would volunteer their time so nice. dennis would be a licensed archaeologist and um i'd be the project historian ashley she volunteered her time to, to do the recording, the geophys. Uh, we had a surveyor, Brendan Erigan, who uh, plotted out the, the points that we were going to... Uh, had pl plotted out, actually, is 
geophys points of interest for us for the excavation um, and we did as well um, a sort of a bit of a social media campaign to get volunteers to which my surprise um, we were we were had, we had to turn back people there was just so oh, much wow. interest in it so it progressed and I should mention that if you want to do something like this it's not as simple as getting a 13 ton excavator and just digging a bunch of holes this was a proper licensed excavation from the state um, which Dennis said that when he was going about getting the license, the person he was dealing with hadn't actually come across something like this before. We were getting permission to to do a dig on something that wasn't recorded as archaeology and it wasn't any, any trash of so been turned into a motorway. But regardless of this sort of unusuality, we were granted permission for um, to do the excavation. So this went ahead in August 2018 in coincidence with the 50th anniversary of Burke Vintage Week. Um, the day before we had the volunteers come on site, we put in our test trenches, um, which was sort of worrying us at the start because we didn't see anything that looked like trenches and we were getting incredibly worried that we had a bunch of volunteers coming for every day in the week and we'd have nothing to show them. Right, yeah, but right. um, luckily there was sort of that, you know, these are definitely mock trenches when we had part of a crenulation shown. So we had um, five test trenches and it was in, I think the fifth one or the, maybe the third one that we'd seen yet. Yeah, this is what we have. Um, the first point of interest that we'd identified through actually survey was actually a gas pipe, but which is very interesting was it was a gas pipe. I didn't know about, um, I, I've, I've seen plans of the gas works um, in the barracks. Um, they they built their own gas works, as you do in, in the 1860s, to supply right. the barracks with light. Um, they were producing coal gas. But um, the gas pipe that we uncovered that I hadn't sort of heard about, I later discovered that at the, the northern end of the barracks, they were actually having gas flow problems. The gas went in at the south. So this is obviously a 20th century um, sort of alleviament uh, to that problem okay. but anyway with the, our test trenches put in we had the, our various volunteers under the guidance of Dennis um, properly excavate and record as we sort of dug out um, two sections of of, um, of the sections of trench uh, through the excavation we sort of identified that there were at least two, two uh, parallel uh, running north to south lines of trench and they varied in depth from maybe a few inches to half a meter and this sort of coincided with local knowledge and um, bef before the geophys started i had i had been just very curious so the houses that uh, the that were built on the 14 acres were crib and terrace and i i just went knocking on people's doors and asking them if if they knew anything about mock trenches being in their gardens and most people told me that when they were growing up, that that area of where the, the line of trenches was running was known as the trenches. And oh, wow. Um, wow. some descriptions say that they were deeper than half a meter. So it coincides with what we found. But um, it was fantastic to, to see when we had exposed um, crenulations. They were, they were quite large. They were quite large, maybe about three three quarter scale of a full size trench. Um, I suppose as well, we were lucky that Dr. Heather Montgomery was one of our volunteers. She mm -hmm. came down um, for the entire week and her, she had already had done excavation work on first world war trenches or sorry, mock trenches in Northern Ireland. So having her expertise on hand as well was fantastic. Um, unfortunately, 
one of my main research questions was to establish who actually built the trenches and my sort of maybe made me more romancing this was that we'd open up a trench and there'd be you know loads of mock grenades uh maybe a, a lewis strum magazine and some right. buttons and it would quite nicely tell us who dug the trenches but alas um in, in the way of small finds i think our best find was a in 1918 silver treatments right, right. Uh, we didn't get anything to identify who dug them yeah, so yeah. the mystery is still there it's quite possibly local recruits been joining up there and getting training from my own research i know the 6th battalion leinster regiment were there for a stint the 3rd mm-hmm. battalion cameron highlanders were there and there was a bit of a depot for the royal army medical corps so it's sort of anyone's guess but um, I suppose as well we can tell just by looking at the trenches that there, there are these sort of textbook crenulations that you might envision when you think of the Western Front. Um, that sort of, I suppose, design of trench, it only came about maybe late, around maybe 1915, early 1916. Okay. So we can maybe guess that's when they they were dug, but it's, there's, um, it's, it's hard to say. There's actually just... Um, on a side note, there's one interesting newspaper article which mentions that the officers of the 3rd Battalion Leinster Regiment had permission from a landowner to dig mock trenches in July 1914. And oh, wow. this, this wasn't in um, the training grounds. It was on a site elsewhere, but I, I haven't had any luck trying to find those. But it shows that they were conscious of this as a form of training and obviously as as the First World War showed them, that's that's what life was going to be like for four years. Well, wow, yeah, that's pretty interesting. Um, it kind of makes sense, though, that you're not going to find too much military paraphernalia, uh, especially weapons and magazine drums. If you're on the training ground, you know, they're, they're, uh, they're going to have to check in the rifles and, you know, all that kind of stuff. And if something goes missing, the quartermaster is going to be on somebody's case about it. Am I right in saying that that was the first mock World War One trench excavation in Ireland? Um, yes and no. Um, when I was advertising it, it was sort of funny. Um, I thought it might have been the first time mock trenches were excavated in the Ireland of Ireland, but Heather had done um, the excavations in Northern Ireland before okay. then. Mm-hmm. So I rebranded it as the first excavation of mock trenches in the Republic of Ireland. <laughs> and then after that, um, Spike Island came out and said that they had found a, a mock trench before us. So I have to rephrase that yet again to the first time that um, someone was intentionally looking for... Oh, right. Okay, okay. So it was just constantly rebranding. Because like, I used to spend a lot of time out in the Curra as well, and there were mock trenches out there. But I, as far as I know, they were never excavated as well. Um, but that's really interesting that the trenches, from what I was reading of your work, it was that they weren't full size. Like like you said, they were only a couple of inches to maybe half a meter, which, you know, for the type of fighting trench warfare that they were engaging in, they weren't preparing them at all for it then. I, I think there's maybe two reasons or, or that for having them as a maybe three-quarter scale. Um, if you look at where the barracks was in Burr um, and the training ground, it's it's actually quite small. 
And it's important as well to still have that as a, a parading ground as well. So I think they were strategically located in the, the sort of the northwest corner of the, the training ground so they could conserve space. And then again, when you're preparing the soldiers, I suppose it, it, it's a condensed, I suppose the, the pre-war um, British Army were their professional soldiers. And then with the outbreak of war, they, did, they just needed the manpower. So the training program was condensed and the purpose of these might have been purely just to say, this is how you sit a trench. This is what it should look like. Right. Um, and then as well, another important aspect might have been for them to learn how do you rotate a company in and rotate a company out. Do you know, this is not, it's something you're going to want to do as quietly as possible. So hmm. the Germans don't hear that there's movement and open up shelling. So it's, I, I suppose it does show that the, tra- the soldiers were getting they were getting training to some degree before they were going out there. They were being showed all these different things. And then again, if, if the recruits from here were going off to somewhere like Aldershot, again, there were more train, there were more trenches there. So they were, they were getting a bit of a, I suppose, um, exposure to what was waiting, um, waiting them in France. But, um, just going back to the small finds, like even if we had found evidence of them, of using cooking, we, we might have been able to surmise that they were spending prolonged periods of time here. Yeah. But yeah. just from what our lack of finds, we weren't really able to say how they were being used. Um, well, actually, I, I can. I forgot to mention um, two interesting things we found were firing steps that they were taking that into consideration. Okay. Out of the natural sort of soil, they had there were two uh, firing steps excavated into the into the trench so like they were been somewhat semi-realistic there was no evidence to say that the two trenches were linked so they weren't necessarily a frontline mock trench there was no evidence of like a, a reserve line or communication trenches now mm. we were only getting the tail end of them as i said most of the trenches were built over with houses and gardens and stuff and maybe if we had the time and money and excavated those we might find otherwise but they weren't as extensive as, say, the Curra Camp or, or even the Phoenix Park, where you get little salients and you get uh, second lines, reserve lines and communication trenches. These are, from what we can see, just sort of more like, this is what a trench should look like. This is how you dig a trench. So, Much more completed training and realistic uh, scenarios, I suppose. In a sense, you were fairly lucky because had you had built your you know, your sample trenches and they just happen to be parallel to the actual trenches themselves, you know, you could have very easily come up shorthanded. But I suppose, once again, luck was on your side. You know, luck seems to be a fairly uh, important part for you. You just happen to talk to the right person to get the keys to the graveyard and then you just happen to be talking to uh, um, the archaeologist, you know, and so you, you're stri- striking a lucky there as well. Yeah, it's it's been, I suppose, a testament to how... Um, I suppose willing people are to collaborate, um, like the excavation. I, I, I couldn't see that happening again. I think it was just the sort of coming together of like the support from Offaly County Council and the uh, Ashley Green from Bournemouth coming over, and as well, and um, the Irish Heritage School have been so willing to sort of to, to facilitate a community dig. And I suppose my knowledge of the barracks and the site to, to all come together to have the dig and well not to mention the, the volunteers who are willing to give up their time to come together to make it possible. Um, I think a lot, a lot gets done for having a good team 
And I think if it had just been me on my own, like it would have never happened in a million years. Yeah, for sure. Uh, certainly working together and having more minds uh, work together is, is, is certainly, it's, it's great. But we've talked about Crinkle Barracks. We've talked about the history starting in the Napoleonic era. We talked about the, the, the life of it throughout the 19th to 20th century. We've talked about the mock uh, excavations and we've talked about a couple of the soldiers. But tell us about the greatly named Captain Lancelot Joseph Moore Studholm please um lancelot is someone that i've had sort of an amazing experience just researching him um i go back to some of the early research i've done and i um i once asked if i could copy all the church of ireland parish records to for my own research and this select vestry were very grateful and gave me permission to do that um and to the patience of uh the, the reverend there I must have spent three hours photographing everything. And afterwards he said, oh yeah, we have memorials. And I was like, oh, can I see these? And looking around, there was a memorial to the First and Second World War dead of Burr Parish. There were some Leinster Regiment memorials and there were some out of place memorials. And one of them was to a Captain Lancelot Joseph Moore Studholm. And I was just sort of, hmm, who is this person? Didn't think much of it. And um, later in my meanderings and research in, in Burr and Crinkle. Um, I met the late Sean Cook, who was a, a great local enthusiast for um, Burr Barracks and military history. And uh, the first time I met him, I must have spent three or four hours where he was just talking at me with just so much information about the barracks. And he was just so happy to have someone who was interested like himself. And um, one of the things he mentioned was a Lancelot um, stood home and a cross and, and this sort of took me back and was like, oh, what's this cross? Apparently it was some memorial to him. Um, Studholm had been killed on the Somme in September 1916. And this piqued my interest. You know, the usual sources, Google, there was nothing. I had no idea. Um, I had heard that the cross was on the land of Ballyegan House, which was built by Bernard Mullins, which money he made actually from building the barracks. Hmm. Um, so this was Lancelot's... Uh, home um i was able to get in contact with the owners and i just asked them a, a bit about it and they didn't seem to know much so that's that was it i i put it on the back burner i, I for my for my own sort of purpose i assumed the cross was gone it wasn't there um, and then randomly um i must have been some event i was at in burr i was randomly chatting to someone and they said to me um about the cross and that they'd seen it only 10 years prior um, from of all things a hot air balloon so i was like wow this is this is fantastic can we go and see it so um we got in we got in the car and off we drove and we were sort of in a bit of a laneway and the chap was like i remember seeing it or somewhere around here and we couldn't see anything that looked like a cross so i was like okay i'm gonna take this further so i think at the time i still had a desk or workspace in Offaly county council so i remember been on google maps this is where this is the spot that the cross is meant to be in, sort of hovering around. Couldn't see anything. I was like, oh, and then I was like, oh, actually, I know what. I'll, I'll try Bing Maps, and this is probably one of the few times um, Bing Maps was actually much better resolution than right. Google. And I went back to the same area. I was around Ballyegan House, up on the hill, and sort of I, I got sort of like goose pimples. 
there was a little speck in the center of a field casting the shadow of a cross. No, so no. it was still there. Um, next, the arduous part came of trying to figure out who owned the land. So sort of true contacts in Offaly County Council, I was to get a, I got a rough idea of who owned the land. So um, a friend of mine, uh, we, we drove down and um, um, we were outside the house and I, I suppose I didn't want to be cold calling. And I, I didn't know what, what the, how the person, the people in the house might feel towards the cross. So I suppose there was lots, lots of play, and I remember um, the lady who owns the land was in her garden. So I just started shouting at her, "Hello!" And she she came over, and I was just talking there, and I I didn't want to let on how much I knew. So I was sort of like, um, "Is there a cross on your land?" And she was like, "Yes." And I was like, "Oh, is it to a chap called Lancelot Joseph Moore Sudholm?" And she was, and she said, "Yes, it is." And uh, I was like, "Well, can I can I see it?" So she said yes. So I proceeded to, I had permission, proceeded to go up the fields and it was a very misty day and sort of making my way up, I could just see this absolutely enormous oak cross. Like you've never seen anything this big. It's easily 6.6 meters tall and it's just standing in the center of the field. And I got up and in the center, a bronze plaque stating that the cross commemorates, um, Lancelot Joseph Moore stood home and uh, absolutely fantastic. Um, so after this, I started to do more research on Lancelot and it seems he was sort of a very generous person. He was well-liked. Um, he was a patron of the, the two local Church of Ireland churches. Um, he was a patron to a local school in Bally Egan. He seems to be like a genuine chap and even the person who had initially um who initially showed me where he thought the cross was it said that a relative of his had remembered um stood home in school giving the children sweets before he went off to france um so it sort of started unraveling the story and the more i found out about him the more i sort of started to like him and think like he he shouldn't have been a soldier at all like he wasn't soldier material, if you know what I mean. Yeah. He was yeah. just doing what he might have thought was his juicy. Um, he, like his hobbies were gardening and his speciality were daffodils. Um, his When the war broke out, he enlisted as a private so he could serve. And then he got his commission as a second lieutenant um, in the 7th Battalion Leinster Regiment. And in the book um, by Max Stainford on the Seven Leinsters, He's going around the company commanders and he comes to Lancelot and this is him writing in the book saying that um, you'll like Lancelot best, that he's a very timid and shy man from Burr and that his hobbies include kittens and daffodils. So he just sounds like yeah. a very innocent person, a sort of landed gentry type who in his own right believes that joining up maybe for king and country or, or patriotic reasons is the best course of action. So he joins up anyway and... Um, as I mentioned, he was killed on the Somme, but the, the actions surrounding his death are, again, it comes to this sort of, sort of caring nature about him, where um, apparently the Seven Leinsters were in the latter phase with the 16th Irish at um, Gillimont and Ginchy. Mm. So they captured Gillimont and then run to, to Ginchy, and they came across resistance, uh, machine gun fire, and apparently 
Stud Holmes' Batman uh, by a man named Hart from Crinkle, who had worked on his estate, was wounded by a bullet. Lancelot went to help him and was hit and killed. Um, the accounts in the paper are quite touching. It says the manner of his death is which one that should not be forgotten, which in itself is sort of true. It's his lack that act was that of kindness to, to try and save a, a fellow person, you yeah. know, in something as inhumane as war, his last act was that of humanity. So I think that sort of set in motion um, my own sort of goal that at least for the centenary of his death, we'd, we'd do something for it. So I organized um, a small like church service essentially at the cross uh, on the 100th anniversary on, on the morning um, of his death, which um, was quite nicely which was supported by um, Offaly County Council. And it was sort of at that point that um, the landowner um, was sort of, had mentioned that they were quite worried about the cross and that it was going to fall. Like at this point, like in a strong wind, you would, you would see it sway. There, mm-hmm. there were parts of it where you could see light through it. You know, it, it had been there for probably the best part of a hundred years. I, I'm surmising it would have been a, been put up around 1919, 1920. So it's been there for nearly 100 years. So um, it wasn't until the the excavation um, in 2018 that um, I was showing Tom Burke uh, of the Royal Dublin Fusilier Association across. He was keen to see it and sort of said that um, the words that stuck with me that this cross sort of represents a generation of young men and that it's you know it's a very important and like it, it's probably the largest freestanding wooden cross in the whole of Ireland that commemorates one person so I suppose with that in mind I approached Amanda Pedlow and Offaly County Council again saying look this is a really important cross it needs to be conserved um, so we set about doing that. Um, there was some funding available and I started a GoFundMe and a bit of a social media campaign to try and raise some funds for its conservation. Um, so we we had Amanda contracted people to conserve it and um, the work was going ahead. And it was sort of only sort of when we had a date for putting the cross back up and when the work had been complete that I sort of realized two significance events, which, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not superstitious or sort of anything, but just, just they're sort of spooky coincidences. The first day work began on the cross was the anniversary of Lancelot's death. And again, by pure happenstance, the date the cross went back up was the 11th of November Oh, wow. So okay. two really significant dates that were purely coincidental, mm. um, which I thought was quite fitting. That's incredible. But, um, as what happened with the cross is it was basically um, a resin was poured into it, which sort of consolidates the remaining wood as one piece now. And it's basically water impervious. And we have um, basically a rough estimate that the work's going to last on it for about 100 to 150 years. So... That's great. It'll be there for his 200th anniversary. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah, that's that's really interesting. I'll have to go and check that out the next time I'm down that neck of the woods. Um, but yeah, that's 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 amazing, um, especially because it's what 6.6 meters. That's an incredible feature, especially like of just a wood to last that long in the Irish countryside. That's amazing. And exposed too. Yeah. Like you have to remember, this is on a hill, 
Um, and like I'd say, we were told by the the workmen that you know the cross it probably had another five years worth of life in it. So mm-hmm. we literally nipped it in the bud before yeah, it was yeah. lost forever. Jeez, that's incredible. Yeah. So you were saying that you are back doing your uh, masters and you're doing a research masters in UCD. What's your thesis on? Um, so my thesis is on sort of bird barracks. Um, still, still writing chapters for it. It's uh, part time. I suppose it takes a bit longer when you're doing it part time. But I suppose just the the work on the trenches and all my other bits and pieces together have sort of the sent motivation to 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 try and understand the barracks maybe in a bit more in depth sense and look at its development in comparison maybe to other garrisons around the country. Um, I suppose Burr is just one puzzle in a bigger sort of is one piece of a bigger puzzle to put together as to how how various garrisons around the country worked and how how things like garrison churches came about and, and different um sort of things like the married quarters, how how did they work and um as you can tell I'm I'm still working on it as I don't know the answers yet. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, I mean, how do you, having done all that work on Burr and having your, you know, your mother from Burr and your, um, all your time and effort now in your, in your research going into Burr, how do you feel or do you think that the commemoration of Ireland's involvement in the First World War was significant? Do you think it was, wasn't good enough? Do you think it was all right? What do you think of, of the commemorations as a whole, do you think? Um, that's a very good question. And I think it, it brings up numerous points. I, I think it brings up first that uh, there's a bit of a myth that the First World War was forgotten, which mm. now I'm not saying this as a whole, but I, I don't think in some parts it was necessarily forgotten. Um, like there were commemorations in the 1940s for armistice in Dublin and the Royal British Legion as far as I'm aware was still quite popular in Burr up until the 1970s so I, I think when people think that the First World War was completely forgotten I, I think it, it it's not as forgotten as to what people might lead you to believe it was I think just from hearing about veterans experiences that they didn't talk about them so therefore maybe it, it's you know, you can assume that it's a sort of like a, a forgotten or a collective forgotten experience. But I think it was still prevalent in some parts of the country, um, as even Tullamore as well. Like there's a cenotaph there to the First and Second World Wars, which, again, that was used up until maybe the 1960s, 70s. So, again, it, it probably depends on what part of the country you are in Um and then to get on to commemorations themselves, again, I think it's um, from just what I've seen, it depends on where where in the country you are. Some counties did a fantastic program of, of First World War commemoration, um, different things published and really good work done, whereas in other counties, um, it might have been, there might have been done enough. And I think you had as well... Um, maybe in some places a bit of conflict of interest with um, 
with 1916 that that might take precedence. Yeah. I know yeah. they're, they're both hugely significant events in Irish history and it might be fair to assume people might have a stronger preference towards one. But like um, as a whole, it was nice to see some, it was nice to see the recognition, but I suppose maybe some like, um, like in Eden Derry, we, uh, we talked about, um, uh, there was the First World War book done on the Eden Derry experience. There was a war memorial put up in Eden Derry. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. like that, that's, that's fantastic to see that. But then again, in other parts of the county, there mightn't have been done enough. And um, I know fair play to them in uh, Shinron, they had a church service to commemorate it. And then in Burr, James Scully organized an absolute fantastic evening of um, short talks, uh, selling, that's what it was, um, short talks and music to commemorate the, the people from the town who had died. So uh, I think as well, like you sort of look at government organizations and local um, local bodies to, to do stuff. But I think a lot of it as well, if the people have the drive, they would do things as well. Like I organized the Lancelot Studholm commemoration on my own steam. So I think it's sort of, it was nice to see people put in the effort too, but then I suppose maybe in some areas um, it, it fell down. Um, okay. So tell us then about your blog. Uh, I came across this as well. Um, and it's really, really interesting stuff. You really get into a lot of detail and it's really well sectioned out amongst your different interests, whether it's Burr, whether it's like the Boer War, Second World War, First World War. It's really, really interesting. Tell us a little bit more about that. Um, so recently I sort of was looking through my own research and discovered that I potentially have hundreds of stories that I've encountered but haven't had an outlet to tell them. And I, I sort of my own feeling is that the reason I'm doing this is in some part to tell these stories of people and if I'm not telling them, then why am I doing this? So I figured a blog might be the best way to get these stories out. The idea is that they're just little individual self-contained stories about a person, ideally revolving around an artifact. The artifact can be anything. It can be a gravestone, a ledger, a medal, maybe even a badge or something. But it's that, that this artifact connects someone with the past and um, it's sort of this little self-contained story about an individual I've come across who I've found of interest and that um, should be told. Um, one example of is um, a meritorious service medal um, to a soldier who I happen to own. And I just think his service, he served for the, the best part of, of several decades. I can't remember the exact number offhand, but it's an, it's an interesting story. He was from Limerick. Um, he served in various places, then ended up in the Kings County Militia, spent 15 years in that in Burr, and then died uh, at the rank of quartermaster, and then is just buried in a nameless grave in Clonahal Cemetery. So I like putting, you know, some sort of context and... and um, just to give an idea of, of what these sort of soldiers, what their lives were like, um, uh, there's no real rhyme or reason. It's it's whoever I've come across, and and ideally, I'll I'll keep trying to post weekly for the next year and see how it goes, and then 
maybe expand and, and keep doing it. Um, but I just think it's a nice way to, to get out these little stories that you wouldn't otherwise wouldn't hear about or little little unseen memorials in parts of the county you might have no reason to, to come across. One example of this might be of the grave of Catherine McGauley in Shinrone. Um, I remember coming across that grave and there's a marvellous epitaph on it by her husband to basically say that she followed her husband through the entire Peninsula War campaign oh. and um, basically helped wounded soldiers and, you know, like, how is a story like that not meant to be told? Um, her Unfortunately, her husband's service records weren't available, so I had to do a bit of deduction to try and figure out which regiment was he, he was in. But the one the regiment he was in was um, heavily engaged during the Peninsula War, the, the 48 foot. And I suppose this brings on, just, just from this one little self-contained story about Catherine, it brings on a bigger research question as to you know, who are these women that went on campaign with their husbands? Um, at the time, uh, you had to get permission to get married in the British Army, and then typically your wife was taken onto the strength of the regiment and would have followed the husband every which way. So yeah. it sort yeah. of brings on a bigger question as to who are these women, and maybe that's something someone might see sometime and be inspired to take up the, the torch and, and to engage in a bigger a bigger sort of research question with this that personification of an object and putting the story around it that's a really good idea whether it is just a a medal or a headstone or whatever and just building the human element around it you know what's not to love about that with with what's going on in you know america and the uk with their tearing down of memorials and some aptly and rightly so um like in bristol what do you make of, you know, are there any memorials that you think should definitely stay? Yeah, that's a very good question. And it sort of, it'll, it coincides nicely with, with the research I did on the Boer War Memorial in Burr Military Cemetery to the Turbitai Leinster Regiment. I know there's a sort of, a lot of uh, people are sort of, talking about controversial memorial statues that sort of commemorate imperialism and colonialism. And while, while these things are, are they, were, they were never a good thing, um, it's important to not get carried away with sort of this, um, as I mentioned, the, the Boer War Memorial. One could look at it and say that is a sign of British imperialism, colonialism, um, basically a war which was over greed, the annexation of the Boers um, and the basically crushing of independent states. But when you, I, I think these sort of memorials are they're all about the context and when you look at what's it for and the people it's for, it's sort of, you can tell a story about it and maybe look beyond the conflict that it represents and see it as, as names of individuals like the... Memorial in Burr was originally put up to commemorate the dead casualties from um, the Second Anglo Boer War, and and these are militia men, so these are not professional soldiers, and most of them are local. These are people that had, you know, they had their their bakers, they had their everyday profession, butchers, whatever, and then for two weeks a year they were soldiers. They went on their annual training camps, 
And then when the war broke out, they the militias couldn't be ordered on active service, but they but rather asked asked to volunteer. So Turtle answered agreed and they were sent off to South Africa for two years. And you have to remember most of these people would have never been outside of the, their own town, maybe, not, not less in another country. So you have 500 men from the Burr and maybe the surrounding area in a country they've never been in, where the biggest killer is disease. And like most of them ended up just dying from sickness, disease, accidents. One of them was killed in an in enemy engagement, um, but the rest of them died from disease. So when the regiment came back to Burr in 190, or sorry, the battalion came back to Burr in 1902, they were looking at some way to commemorate the men who died. Um, they got the memorial made. They wanted to, the army wanted to put it up uh, in in a prominent place in Burr, and this is where you get a huge amount of controversy. In in hindsight, you can see maybe where some of the controversy would occur again: colonialism, imperialism. The the council in Burr were sort of nationalist. You get the renaming of the town around 1900 from Parsons Town back to Burr. And the proposal of changing street names to more nationalist naming instead of Cumberland Square or Duke Street and all that. So I can understand why they were a bit apprehensive to put up something which in their eyes was to colonialism. But at the time, uh, one councillor mentioned in one of the meetings that he would be never against anything that commemorated the people of Burr. And I think that's the point of this, is that it, it's not saying that the war was great. It's purely a memorial to commemorate local people from the town who, who died, you know, in, in something bigger than them. It, I, I can imagine most of them probably were, other than what they would have read in the paper, were clueless about what they were actually going off to fight against or what the war was for. So I think with this idea of um, memorials, it's it's all about context. And I think as well, we might be in the wrong to judge some memorials to by today's standards, you have to remember the mindset of people back 100, 200 years ago was completely different to our own, and things acceptable to them today are obviously not acceptable now. And while some statues in England, America, obviously, you know, they're offensive and rightly so, they should come down, I think we need to look more carefully, and this is where historians will become very valuable, at what the memorials are and the context of why they were put up as I said earlier, colonialism and imperialism are they, they weren't great things. They never never were. But we need to see beyond that to to sort of to see why these memorials and, and who the people are. Um, and hopefully, I think in some cases, rather than than taking something down, which is it's quite easy to do and to maybe put it away, it's actually harder to to learn about something and to give it context and explain to people. Why, why something is or why this is there and, and the reasons behind it. Yeah, that's, that's good. That makes a lot of sense, especially in the Burr case where it's dedicated towards the local people who died rather than these locals who gave their lives in the cause of British imperialism. And let's remember that the Boers were Germanic Dutch descendants. You know, they were imperialistic as well. You know, they didn't just... They weren't native to parts of what are now South Africa either, you know. There were two imperial forces going at it. Um, but yeah, that makes it uh, that's that makes a lot of sense. Okie doke. 
Stephen Callan, thank you so much. You're very welcome, David. Thanks for having me. Cheers. So there you have it, folks. Stephen Callan and his work on Burr Barracks, the Mock Trenches, and Captain Studholm's Cross, as well as everything else that he does in and around the Offaly town of Burr. You should really follow Stephen's work on Twitter. You'll find him at Stee Callahan. That's S-T-E Callahan, C-A-L-L-A-G-H-A-N-0-1. And you can follow Stephen's blog at thebarracksquare.ie. The Barrack Square is T-H-E-B-A-R-R-A-C-K-S-Q-U-A-R-E dot I-E. Okay, it's the Barrack Square, not the Barracks Square. Just to make sure you don't end up somewhere else on the internet. But really, Stephen's blog uh, on the Barrack Square is brilliant. The way he's broken down into the Napoleonic, Boer War, First, Second, and all his other different parts. It's really interesting. So if you're from Offaly, if you're from Burr, definitely recommend doing that. But even if you're not and you're just interested in history, especially local history, Stephen's blog at the Barrack Square is definitely worth a follow. Also, a point of note, we mentioned a George Washington Holmes at Waterloo. Basically, the day we recorded was the anniversary of Waterloo. So that's why he brought up. We just never mentioned it. So hope you enjoyed that podcast. Stephen's great crack, really interesting and has got great work. If you like the podcast and you want more day-to-day stuff, you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Ireland Battles for daily posts on Irish military history. You can also find me on Patreon forward slash the Irish at War and for as little as three euro a month, you can support and really help me out. But until next time, good luck.